Great global and historical figures become as familiar to us as members of our own families. We recognise their voices, grow accustomed to their mannerisms. We come to feel like we know them. We don't, not really, but some people do, the people for whom great global and historical figures actually are members of their own families. They are people who have to grow accustomed to picking up a newspaper and seeing mum, or a textbook and seeing grandad. This is, doubtless, easier when the personage involved is someone generally admired, notwithstanding the difficulties of life in the shadow cast by someone perched on a lofty plinth. Some are burdened with a family legacy that they did not ask for and cannot be blamed for, but are nonetheless held accountable for by a widespread suspicion that acorns rarely roll far from the tree. What is it really like to have a significant political figure in the family? How weird is it when everyone else's president is your parent? How hard is it to separate the person everyone thinks they know from the one you actually do know? This is The Foreign Desk. I lost my dad when I was 10 and Madiba comes into our lives when I was around 16, 17 having to learn to experience him as a father inside the house. But then whenever we go out, he is Madiba. He, Madiba belongs to all of us as humanity. But it was also good to have him back at home and then be able to give him that sense of normalcy and of family, which he also craved. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Joining me now from Johannesburg is Jacina Machel, a human rights activist and founder of the Kaluka Movement, a non-profit initiative that empowers women survivors of gender-based violence. Jacina's father was Samora Machel, the former president of Mozambique. Her mother is the former first lady of both Mozambique and South Africa, Grasha Machel, which makes Jacina also the stepdaughter of former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela. Jacina, your father was already president of Mozambique when you were born in 1976. Obviously for most kids, whatever it is their parents do just sort of starts to seem pretty normal. But was there a point at which you began to understand that your father did have quite an unusual job? (laughs) Yes, I think my father liked a lot of physical activity. And so he ensured that all of us would go to dance classes. I went to dance classes, swimming, school, you know, things like that. There were different sports that we had to play. And it was at the swimming school that I realized that something was a bit different about me. I probably was around three to four years old. And so I go to my dad and I say, you know what? I'm the daughter of the president. And my father looked at me and he said, what? And I said, yeah, I'm the daughter of the president. And he sat me down and he said, nah, Josina, you, he called me Jean. No, Jean, you are my daughter, okay? The president is for the people, but here you are my daughter. And actually I was quite cheeky. I looked at him and I said, oh, okay. So what am I supposed to tell the people when they say I'm the president's daughter? And he was just a bit dumbfounded and not knowing. But it was because of, of course, walking around with security. There was a driver and there was a security. Aside from a lady that was just helping me, you know, just taking care of me because my mom was the minister of education at the time. So she had her own duties. Of course, on weekends, my dad enjoyed walking around from one side of Maputo to the other, from the beach side, from the coast. 
And of course, there would be lots of security and people would want to come and greet. And, you know, for a three, four-year-old child, it was a bit like bubbly. Oh, people really like dad. And well, then I think at around five, my bubble was burst. Well, indeed so, because I did want to ask whether around or outside the childhood that your parents were trying to create for you, that there was a sense of danger and of jeopardy, because obviously this is a very tumultuous time in Mozambique's history. Absolutely. So at a certain point, they had to sit me down and explain, of course, what the dangers of his work were all about. I had to start understanding politics, right? It was very good to have, you know, all these uncles and grandfathers, as I call them, you know, to President Nyerere, President Kaunda, Oliver Tambo from South Africa. So they would come home and we would socialize as uncle, auntie, grandpa, granduncle. But it was necessary to understand exactly why they were there, what kind of work they were doing, what kind. My dad was very thorough to explain our process of independence from the colonial powers. And that's when I understood that my dad's life in particular, but the lives of Mozambican people were always at risk because of the solidarity, the belief that we needed to all be independent in Southern Africa. Within that sense of jeopardy during the civil war in particular, how normal was your childhood able to be? Were you able to go to school and have a normal education in that respect? Yes, absolutely. Of course, I would drive to school with security. But then around the school, it was fine because we were all friends, you know, brothers, sisters. We wouldn't realise. But for example, in 81, when the apartheid government goes and bombards uh, Matola, it was really very close from my school. So we could hear the bombardments coming. And so at periods like that, there was a heightened level of security. And of course, I could pick up that, you know, this is a bit different. There's a lot more attention as to where we go and so on. But look, we went to public schools. We went to public swimming pools. We played basketball in normal places like any other Mozambican child or teenager used to play. So in that sense, it was very good. I really enjoyed. I still have friends that, you know, I mean, you would ask, sometimes my parents would ask, oh, so who's that friend? And I said, oh, her name is this and this. Who are the parents? And I would like, I would look and say, ah, you actually don't know them. And which was good, you know, it did give us a sense of ordinary life, although it wasn't really very ordinary. And because of that, I normally like to say that my life is a life of contrasts because I get to experience the top and the height of life, security, political spheres, cultural, and so on. But at the same time, I'm able to go to the village and just put a chitenge or a wraparound and just act like a village girl as much as I can. It's a question that always intrigues me about political married couples, as of course your parents were, your mother, as you mentioned, being a senior politician in her own right and a formidable figure in Frelimo in her own right. Did they ever argue about politics between themselves? Yes, they did. But they had a rule that there was only a certain level of depth in which they would go into in front of the children. And then I was particularly cheeky and I would listen. I would pretend I was not in the room. And then two days later, I would repeat what was there. So my parents adopted actually a policy of talking in our traditional languages whenever it was something that 
I was not supposed to listen to. But in general, something that also helped with their marriage was that my father actually clearly demarcated spaces in which they said, you know what, we need to keep this as husband and wife. And then we can have conversations of minister of education and president or even member of parliament or the central committee. Because if they didn't, then they would end up being discussing all these things and actually miss out on the marriage life. And I think that was quite good. I got to experience my parents as parents, mother and dad. I don't want to ask you what sense you were able to make as a very young girl of your father's death in 1986, because I'm not sure anybody can explain what it is to lose a parent at that age adequately. But I did want to ask what, if any sense, you were able to make of the ceremonies and the observances attending his death, because obviously his death is a global news event. The funeral is a massive, massive affair. How comprehensible is that to, I, I think you would have been 10 years old at the time? Absolutely. It was overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. You know, it felt like a bomb had exploded inside the house because my mom was literally in pieces and so were my other brothers and sisters. I was 10 years old trying to understand what was going on. Look, the first thing was immediately when it was confirmed, we were moved away from the presidential home and we went to a second residence that they had there. But the moment we got there, you know, my mom was screaming all over the place and crying. She managed to get some kind of space to tell us what happened. But from then onwards, it was people in and out, ministers, international people coming in and out. And, you know, we were briefed as the kids as to what will happen the following day and so on and so forth. But I have to say it was really overwhelming because it hurt so deep into the hearts of Mozambicans, it really felt like everybody had lost their father, right? And so in that sense, we had so much solidarity that it helped, it minimalized. Of course, I had to do my own journey growing into teenager and realizing that, look, yes, I don't have a father and my father was a president. And for example, there is another president. So there are certain privileges that somehow felt natural that are not yours anymore. And that required a bit of an adjustment, but it was terrible. I have to say I was very privileged because three months, around three months before my father was assassinated, he did speak to me about it. As you know, the situation in Southern Africa, particularly between Mozambique and South Africa, has intensified the level of stress and political heaviness. And of course, danger had increased so much that he thought best to warn that something might happen. And what he said was, there might come a day when you wake up and dad is no more. Are you able to think back to your teenage years and reflect on how your father's legacy affected you, whether this was something you found inspiring or intimidating, I guess, to grow up thinking of? Because obviously, I guess, especially in Mozambique, to everybody you meet before they've got to know you properly, you are first and foremost the daughter of the late president. Absolutely. And it was intimidating more than anything. At a certain point, I called it a curse. (laughs) My mom didn't like that. But (laughs) the thing is, as you grow into teenage and young adults after university, for example, and you want to start doing your own things, you want to validate your own experiences, you want to validate, you know, your knowledge and you want to affirm yourself as an individual. And the first thing that people do is look at you and they decide in five seconds, oh no, she's the president's daughter. Either she has too much money or she has no money or she has no brains, all those kind of things. And eventually they decide whether you are 
capable of just holding up a meeting. And so that was quite rough, but it's a blessing and it's a curse. I think I said it before. At the same time, it opened uh, possibilities for me that have not been open to millions and millions of girls and women in this world. And so I appreciate both. I had to learn to, of course, deal with the responsibility of being the daughter of both Samara and Grasa appropriately, because at the beginning, it was just too much. You know, it was this huge figure. Samara is this huge figure in Mozambique that just does not go away. And the people keep on owning him time and time again. You walk into a bus sometimes and they're playing his tapes, they're playing his speeches. And you need to very quickly adapt to say, okay, that's my dad's voice or at times you say, oh, that's President Samara's voice, <laughs> you see, and, and then decide how you, you handle that. It works for me as an inspiration, you know, understanding what drove a man like that to give himself so much to this nation, um, to the continent. And what took him, because we need to think, Samara Michelle was trained as a nurse, but he was a man that read, you know, he would speak about the same way he speaks about socialism. He would speak about Confucianism. He would speak about historical process that had happened, you know, millennium, millennium of years ago. And so he was a fascinating human being. And unfortunately, I didn't get to meet him. But as I read more, whew, I feel that, you know, it's one of those shoes that you can't even think that you're going to fill into one day. Well, at which point, I have to say, if that was intimidating enough, it's always, I think, probably a strange moment when one of your parents has to tell you they're getting remarried. How does your mother go about explaining not just that she's engaged, but is engaged to the most admired man on earth? It was quite an organic process because, you know, with the death of Oliver Tambo, Tata Madiba somehow took the Michelle family under his wing. But it was also the time when his marriage to Mawini had collapsed. And so they would spend a lot of time and he would go to Mozambique to rest. The INC would send him to Mozambique to rest and so on. And so he would be hosted by mom. And you just realize, you know, we would sit, chat, we would spend a lot of time together. But then whenever he left, the telephone calls would continue. And then they started doubling in the amount of calls during the day and we realized that, well, okay, these two are a bit more than friends. <laughs> but for me, it was a balm, really, because I craved to have a father. I lost my dad when I was 10, and Madiba comes into our lives when I was around 16, 17. And so I really craved to have a dad. It was confusing that it was such a famous dad and that, you know, took me into what would have been my teenage years, perhaps with Samara being the daughter of a president. I don't know. But it took me back into that, you know, having to learn to experience him as a father inside the house. But then whenever we go out, he is Madiba. He, and Madiba belongs to all of us as humanity and people wanted a piece of that but it was also good to have him back at home and then be able to give him that sense of normalcy and of family which he also craved 
What sense were you able to get up close of how he was managing, really, when you think about it, an astonishing number of very difficult transitions at once? He had gone almost without a break from a long period of imprisonment to being president of his country. And then on top of that, he's having to adjust to a new family as well. That is a lot going on in one man's life. Absolutely. But Majiba was a man of discipline um, to the minute. If he had to wake up at 5.30, it was 5.30 to the dot. That then meant that he had time for himself. He had time to just gather his thoughts, plan his day, have time to think, and then, of course, carry out his day. And it was not five past one that you have lunch. It's at one o'clock. Dinner is at six o'clock. At seven o'clock, he's watching the news. At around half past eight, quarter to nine, he's getting into bed. There were times when mom and I make jokes because there were times when he would say, oh, I miss jail. And we would say, what? How can you miss jail? And Papa would say, oh, it's because I had time to think, you know? So that's what he missed the most, the ability to just have the space to gather his thoughts, analyze, give some in-depth analysis to whatever the situation was, and of course, make his choices, because that's a man who had to make choices throughout those years in very difficult choices. At times, choices that, you know, his own movement were not so favorable too, but he stuck to them. He stuck to the principle and he said, we need to do this for the people. And so it was it was amazing to see. But please don't ask me. I don't think I got that kind of discipline. <laughs> you have, of course, found yourself now in the position of being a, an activist and campaigner yourself with the Kaluka movement, campaigning against violence against women. When you go about your work now, how often do you find yourself thinking of your parents and your stepfather as examples of how to operate in politics? Very often, because I decided to give voice and to give face to victims and survivors of violence. So in the space of gender-based violence, you have many people coming in. We've got academics, we've got all sorts of professionals, we've got many other people. It's a multidiscipline um, kind of area. But then there wasn't a lot of space given to victims and survivors, And that is what I decided when I became a victim, I realized that we needed a lot more voices to speak for us and for our own experiences. It's easy to say, well, you know, they can report a crime in 24 hours or whatever it is. The reality is that I might not be ready to report a crime. And the way I want to report a crime needs to be appropriate because you don't just sit in front of me and say, tell me what happened to you. No. On top of it, it might be a man. I need to be able to be in a space that is safe. I need to be in a space where I feel confident and I need to feel trustworthy. I need to feel a sense of trust with the person I need to open um, open up with. But, you know, gender-based violence is so, um, it's so prolific in the society. You deal the effects of gender-based violence. You deal with them in the house, in the family. You deal in society, in the workplace, in political spaces. And it's just extremely convoluted. But it needs people that sit and say, think about our rights. Think about our needs. This is what needs to be done. It's not a small journey. Um, you, 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 You find yourself abused once. And until you get to a process where you are healed, it takes years. And many of us, 
after a few years, we think, you know what, we're done, we're fine, we move on with life until a small little episode comes back. And there you go, you're back into the space of victimhood, of doubt, of pain, of, 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 of so many random feelings. And so it, I also had to engage with a number of organizations. I engaged with the United Nations. I engaged with governments, with parliaments, with civil society organizations. And that forces me, of course, to at times just pause and think, what would my parents have done? Because I'm very explosive. <laughs> at times I want to respond to things and say, oh, stop right there. But I need to say, I need to think uh, that's not the appropriate way to handle this situation. If we need to get progress, if we need to make progress on certain issues, we need to engage, we need to listen to contradictory opinions, we need to listen to extremely offensive opinions and positions, and still be able to engage the following day and say, listen, we're talking about human beings, we're talking about half of the population of this world that is under a high probability of being abused. As we speak now, women abused and women um, who are victims and survivors represent something like 1.3 billion in this world. And so it requires that we sit and we think of the conditions under which these women are treated, under which these women live. Uh, just have one final question before we go. Um, how is your mum these days? What's she up to? My mother is still up to the same. My mom's heart is really the people. So because of COVID-19, she will, she had to spend a lot more time in Mozambique because the, 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 the lockdown was not as hard as it was here in South Africa. And of course she couldn't go to the office and do her work. Well, first of all, I have to say, and I think we all need to congratulate, she does meetings online. She participates in conversations all over the world online. So she doesn't have to trot around the globe. But then she went back to basics, you know, because she always communicates with the community, with the women and with the children all over. She started looking and just encouraging them. Believe me, my mom now, uh, when I go to the, when I go home, I see that she's raising chicken. She's trying to do rice and sweet potato and onions. And uh, I asked her, I said, mom, where does this come from? And she says, I'm leading by example. If I have to tell people that we need to start looking at our own gardens and engage in grace food from it, I have to show it. And that's what she's doing. But she's still, you know, on the global arena, very athletic, very busy and uh, still very sweet mommy. Josina, thank you. That was the human rights activist Josina Machel. You can find out more about her non-profit organisation, the Kaluka Movement, by heading to kaluka.org. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle 24. It is clearly daunting being related to a hero, but at least it's a connection one can discuss with pride. What is it like being descended not merely from a villain, but from the villains by which all other villains are measured? Joining me now from Miami is an American investigative journalist who has tracked down a few people whose family name is an unusually burdensome curse. Gerald Posner, author of Hitler's Children, Sons and Daughters of Third Reich Leaders. Gerald, let's start at the beginning. You wrote Hitler's Children some while ago now, certainly before the advent of social media, which must have made the task even more difficult. When you set out to try and find the descendants of the likes of Hess, Goering and Mengele, where do you even start? 
The great thing is, in some ways, the lack of social media made it easier because today social media means that if you're the grandson or granddaughter of an infamous or famous person in world history, you can go on YouTube and TikTok, you can do whatever. You don't necessarily need to have a journalist tracking you down and sending a letter to you and saying, by the way, do you want to talk about this? You see so many outlets that in some ways it makes it more difficult for those of us putting together, let's say, serious longer histories who get hold of them and say, by the way, would you like to talk about this? Do you want to sit down for a week or more and tell me about the deep, dark feelings that you have about your father or grandfather? And I think that I liked it in the sense that they hadn't been contacted in many cases. And so it really was a game of searching for them. And so you'd start off looking. It wasn't always easy. The great thing from the viewpoint of a reporter is that in Europe, in the continent in general, but especially in Germany, in many instances, families lived in the same addresses generation after generation. So you were literally able to go back and even if the family name had changed or somebody had gotten married, they didn't move that far away. They might have been half a mile away or you know, a few kilometers away. And so once you got your feet on the ground and you started to go around inside of Frankfurt and Munich and other areas, you'd find somebody who knew that family. And oh yes, and I remember, and that son, Klaus, he moved, as a matter of fact, after he became an attorney outside of Frankfurt on Main, and then you'd go over there and you'd make a couple of calls and eventually you'd make the contact. Then, of course, the real difficulty is you've made the contact, you found the person that nobody has spoken to for a long time, and you have to convince, in my case, Germans who aren't that open in the first place. It's not like Americans who sit down as strangers at some Starbucks coffee shop and start to tell you about their life story without you even asking sometime. You're sort of startled at that. You know, you go to a German and you say, by the way, I'd like to ask you not just about the facts of your family, but I'd like to know what you feel about it. What I was really saying to people and what worked is you obviously have your own personal history on this. You've grown up in the shadow of sometimes an infamous character, infamous in the way the rest of the world looks at them in terms of history. How do you deal with that? You have a legacy in that sense. And I'm interested in hearing your view of that legacy, whether you condemn your father or whether you praise your father, tell me what your view is and I'll publish that. And that was what I came to them with. So I wasn't sitting there in judgment. And when somebody like Etta Goering, whose father, Hermann Goering, was one of the top members of the Reich, sort of, you know, wanted money for an interview or wanted to defend her father, I didn't sit there and castigate her as some scurrilous person, although I thought her views were scurrilous. I wanted to hear them. And I think that was the thing. You know, as the journalist, you're the fly on the wall. You're recording history. And so in this case, I'm recording what the second generation of top Nazis felt. Were they in denial about what their parents had done? Or were they capable of having enough distance from their parents to condemn their actions and not think of themselves as having those genes that are necessarily going to pass to another generation? It was a fascinating little portrait of history. 
Was there a general trend you found in how they were able to keep those things in their head? Because obviously I think it's a common place of people that they want to think good things about their families. They want to think good things about their countries, but people especially want to think good things about their parents. They are literally the people who make us who we are. And yet if you know that your particular parent is absolutely and correctly damned as this astonishing, atrocious, historical monster, how do you get your head around that? It's a fascinating question because when you think of it, I mean, even in the case of Himmler's daughter, Gudrun, who turned out to be a, a pretty much a neo-Nazi in her later years, she was 12 or 13 years old during the war. Some of the children were younger. So they saw their fathers at the height of what I call the political power of the Third Reich, of National Socialism. They were the privileged elite. And so at the home life, was a privileged home life. They didn't see any of the horrors. These children weren't taken to concentration camps and shown what the effects of the policies were of elimination and extermination of of Jews and communists and gays and Jehovah's Witnesses and those who weren't mentally fit and didn't fit as superior members of the Third Reich. They didn't see that as children. They saw instead at home what they would think of as loving fathers. And for the children, it's difficult to disassociate that to say, I knew this person as a parent. I read more about them and I realize the crimes that they've committed and I'm able to condemn that father and see them in a totally different light. There are two brothers who grew up with Hans Frank, who was the governor general of Poland. He was an attorney who ran Poland, where all the concentration camps were, the killing camps were. They grew up Nicholas and Norman in a castle of the former kings of Poland. That was the castle that his father took over to run occupied Poland from. They played among the gravestones of Polish kings. They didn't realize this world they grew up in. The young Nicholas remembers going into his father's office and seeing a painting behind his father of a woman, as he recalls it, as a five and six-year-old child, as a woman holding a white rat. He thought it was the ugliest painting in the world. His father took that painting and had it shipped back to Germany at the end of the war. It turns out that that was Lady with an Ermine, one of da Vinci's great works of art that was missing after the war, was found and returned to the Polish museums. But through the eyes of the child, it was a woman holding a white rat. Nicholas hates his father, thinks that he's horrific, that he's a man of evil who was weak, who wouldn't stand up to Hitler. Norman, the older brother, is conflicted thinks that what his father did was terrible, but still loves his father. That's a remarkable difference when you see the two children growing up in the same household and reaching different conclusions on that legacy they're left with. Of course, the children can't be blamed for the crimes of the father, without any doubt. They can be blamed, however, when they continue the ideologies of the father. So Wolf Hess, for instance, who I interviewed, was an unrepentant apologist for his father and for the Third Reich, and became a rallying cry for many of the right-wingers. He's now passed away, he's deceased, but became a rallying cry, as did Gudrun Himmler, uh, Himmler's daughter, who's uh, passed away, also became a rallying cry for the far right. So they can be condemned for their own actions in their own lives, not for what their parents had done. But one of the things I thought was interesting is that those children who were the children of the highest ranking Nazis, the Himmlers, the Gerings, the Hesses, there was even in post-war Germany, in defeated post-war Germany, they had a status among Germans civilians inside of Germany in many instances. The ones who were absolutely ostracized 
were the children of what I call the war criminals with blood on their hands in the concentration camps, the Mengele's, the angels of death, Joseph Mengele's of Auschwitz. Rolf Mengele, who spoke to me, said, for us, meaning the children like him, it's the worst of all worlds because even the German right-wingers, they say to the Rolf Mengele's of the world, oh, it was your father who ruined it for the Third Reich. You know, the Third Reich was this effort to build up this empire, and then your father was off in the wilds of Poland doing these horrendous war crimes for which everybody remembers Nazi Germany, and it's your father to blame. And then people who can't stand the Third Reich and understand what a horrible thing it was, blame him from the start. So he said, on both ends, you're condemned on all counts. Gerald Posner, thank you. That was the American investigative journalist Gerald Posner, author of Hitler's Children. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, and I'm joined finally by a guest who you may have heard on previous editions of The Foreign Desk discussing Russia. And if you thought her name sounded vaguely familiar, there were reasons for that. Welcome back to The Foreign Desk, Nina Khrushcheva, Professor of International Affairs at the New School, editor of Project Syndicate, and the great-granddaughter and adoptive granddaughter of former Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. Nina, first of all, can you recall the beginnings of your understanding that Nikita Khrushchev, your grandfather, was actually this extraordinarily important historical figure? Well, it happened late for us because I was born at the time when he was no longer the great historical figure. Mm. He was actually not historical figure at all because he was not mentioned anywhere when he retired and I mean, he was ousted in 1964, he was deleted from all history books, from any mentioning in any public space. And so I was growing up with him in known person. So I knew about him, of course, in at home, in the family, among my mother's friends, but in the public environment and its school environment, there was never Khrushchev. There was always the Communist Party of the Soviet Union that did whatever it did from 1953 to 1964. So for me, it was a very different experience because I only became not aware, but stopped kind of thinking about not mentioning my name in a sense only in 1986 or 88 even when Mikhail Gorbachev for the first time mentioned him in public space in in the Soviet Union, it was in 88, but I think in giving an interview to the American magazine, I don't remember, it's either Time or Newsweek, he mentioned Khrushchev's name, but it was never when his interview was reprinted in the Soviet press. Khrushchev's name was still deleted out of it. Gorbachev was only saying that Kennedy was a great man during the Cuban Missile Crisis, although in his American interview, Gorbachev said that Kennedy and Khrushchev were great men of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's different from us because we were ousted and only brought back to history with Perestroika and Glasnost under Mikhail Gorbachev. There's a photo of you on your website with Nikita Khrushchev taken in 1971, which I guess is just before he died and when you are about, I think, seven years old. What do you remember of him from that time as a person? Yes, that was his last birthday. It was April 1971. He was a lovely grandfather. I mean, you know, all grandfathers, I imagine, 
quite lovely. And I actually remember that day, maybe because my mother then remembered that day with me many times because it was a very important day since it was his last birthday. And I remember he, during that day when we walked for many, many hours, he loved to walk. And this whole day we were walking around his dacha, the country house, and he was talking to me about the horrors of racism. I was seven years old, as you can imagine. I would understand those things really well at that age because I was reading the Uncle Tom's House. And mm-hmm. he was explaining to me what an important book that is and what a great country America is if it weren't because its proletariats are just the most wonderful workers. But racism really makes it very difficult for the country to move forward in some ways. He was very prophetic in that regard, I guess. But it was conversation of a person who doesn't waste his words in kind of this petty, small, homey conversations. It's always about some grand message. But at the same time, he was a lovely grandfather because he also allowed us to be children because my mother remembered and actually the rest of the children remember that when they were children, young children, the parents were very strict and actually referred to each other in front of the children as Nina Petrovna and Nikita Sergeyevich, which is very formal and patronymic and using the we, which is the second person plural to each other out of respect, like a vu in French. But with us already, the next generation, they allowed us to I don't know, jump on couches. And, you know, there's a one story that I would remember to this day. We were in his, my sister and I were in grandfather's office and we were jumping on a sofa because it had springs almost coming out of the cover. And it just seemed kind of a wonderful, enjoyable thing to do, like a trampoline. And when my mother saw it, she almost fainted because how dare we jump on the couch and grandfather's study and he came in and said, oh, no, that's okay. They're just doing it for me. That's fine because look at me. If I jump, I mean, the sofa and the whole house will collapse. (laughs) So they're doing it for me. So he was adorable. He was endearing and he was never embarrassed to be silly. And actually, it was interesting because now when I've studied him, I'm actually writing a biography of his right now. And his public behavior was never different from his non-public behavior, which I guess in some ways could be handicap or was a handicap in certain instances or many instances in politics. But at the same time, it was also an amazing quality. He was what he was. For you personally, and maybe in that period in the 1980s when the Khrushchev name was readmitted to the public discourse in the Soviet Union, what kind of reaction did you run across when people understood who you were related to? People understood it before. It's also people could acknowledge it more publicly instead Mm. of just saying, oh, Nina Khrushchev, oh, she's related to that person, but we cannot talk about that person. And therefore, she's a non-person, too. So it was a public acknowledgement. But I grew up in a very privileged intellectual environment because my mother was part of the bohemian elite in Moscow. She was sort of a dissident in her own right, not a dissident we think of when we think of Andrei Sakharov, but she would, for example, shuttle all the summers that published abroad 
forbidden books in the Soviet Union, like Alexander Solzhenitsyn's and other great books that the Soviets were not supposed to read. So she would receive them from another dissident, the historian Roy Medvedev, and she would then give it to her elite friends all around Moscow for a night or two nights, the way it was in the Soviet Union. And she would actually bring those books to Khrushchev as well. So he would read the criticism of his own communism written by other people. And in fact, she was saying that he himself came to be very critical of the system he presided of, not of communism as a concept, but the way it was handled by Stalin and by him too as well. So that was something that became more open after 88. And it was, I remember the feeling that when we first encountered the public mentioning, I mean, my mother was crying, my aunt Rada was crying because for them, I mean, I grew up with him being non-person, but for them, it was suddenly an opening after more than 20 years. And then suddenly they could be the descendants of a very important political figure. And so that was a very big moment in our family life. But my politics, my interest in politics, I guess it's somehow related to this, just because it was no politics and then suddenly we could think politically again hmm. after Perestroika. But also when I moved to the United States, I was actually studying comparative literature as Moscow elite children would. But then America just had no idea. I mean, it still has no idea what Russia is, what the Soviet Union was, how to explain it, how to understand it. I mean, we see it today remarkably. So I started writing. I started writing op-ed columns, kind of trying to explain Yeltsin. And I loved it. When you start looking into Nikita Khrushchev as a historical figure, what do you find yourself thinking about him? Because it's inevitably a mixed legacy. It would have to be. It always is whenever anybody rises to any position of power, but particularly to the pinnacle of power in the Soviet Union in that period. And famously, of course, for all that Nikita Khrushchev repudiated Stalin in his secret speech in 1956, he was, prior to Stalin's death, an enthusiastic supporter and lieutenant. Absolutely. And I think as Gorbachev would say in your question, there is an answer. (laughs) You know, I wouldn't answer it any better. It's exactly that. It's a very torn legacy. And when I wrote that part of the book, when he was Stalin's very enthusiastic flunky and looking at him, there's a picture on the internet. I think it's 1936 and he and Stalin are sitting at a podium together, and Khrushchev looks at him with the most adoring eyes possible. And he writes in his memoirs that Stalin was my idol, and I was completely taken by him, and I thought he was the most charming and wonderful man and whatnot. So no, I, I have to deal with it. And I, when I finished that part of the book, I mean, I know it's probably I shouldn't say it on, on air, but I was almost vomiting because it was just horrible. How can I reconcile myself with what he has done. One, I, everybody has to always remember that Russian history and Soviet history as part of Russian history is incredibly torn and incredibly bloody. And it's very much like a pendulum swing. You get from extreme horrors to kind of extreme chaos. 
as it was, for example, during Yeltsin years. So yes, and Khrushchev was part of that, probably the most perfect example of it, precisely because he was what he was. He was never wearing a facade to an extent. He is all of it. He is like the whole Russia and, you know, the double-headed eagle looks in one place and then looks at another place and it's all 11 time zones and it's all contradictory, but at the same time, it's one thing. And I don't know if you've been to Moscow, but his memorial stone is done by absolutely brilliant sculptor Ernest Niesvesny has Khrushchev's head sitting in between the white piece of marble and a black granite. And that kind of shows his contradictory nature, sort of Khrushchev between reformer and the reactionary. And he was both a reformer and the reactionary. Nina Khrusheva, thank you very much for joining us on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy Evans. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.